What's going on, everybody? Hello again, and welcome back to another episode of the Welch Report with me, Jean-Luc Welch. Make some noise, clap it up, get excited. Wherever you are, we are back with another jam-packed episode covering the world of sports all around this great nation and just around the world in general as we got the Super Bowl coming up this week. Cheese versus 49ers. Who do I think is going to win? What's the biggest X factor? Also, we got to talk about the NBA and boxing with Javante Tank Davis. All that's going to be talked about on this show. We got so much to cover. Thank you again for tuning in. Again, before we start, leave a like on the video, comment your thoughts and opinions, subscribe to the channel, and share the show with everybody that you know so we can keep on building up this empire of a channel, of a show together. We're nearly at 800 subscribers. My goodness, we keep on trucking along. Quickly, we are becoming a notarized name. Well, at least in theory, we're becoming a notarized name, but I can't do it without your help to so keep on sharing. Also, we're available on every podcasting platform, Apple, Google, Spotify, you name it, we're there. And if we're not, tell me, and I will get there expeditiously. But without further ado, we got a bunch of cover in the world of sports. So let's jump right in with the world of the NBA, or not the NBA, the NFL rather. As the biggest game of the year is now upon us, the Chiefs versus 49ers are going to face off in this year's Super Bowl for the ultimate prize of being NFL champs. Who do I think is going to win and what will be the biggest concern for, or rather the biggest X factor, excuse me, for why this game will go however it turns out. Well, my prediction is right off the bat. I got the Chiefs winning over the 49ers. Now, granted, what have I said countless times on this show? I have said that the 49ers are the best built team in football. From their defense to their offense and everything in between they have, in my opinion, the best personnel of talent in the NFL in its totality. Defense led by Nick Bosa has been outright stout and phenomenal. And their offense, my goodness, again, Christian McCaffrey, Debo Samuel, George Kittle, and with Brock Purdy, seemingly nixing the game manager moniker of him and making this offense one of the most potent in the NFL. This is a team that is a well-ordered machine. Outright from top to bottom, they are built to dominate and succeed. But going against them again is the Kansas City Chiefs. Even with the loss of Tyreek Hill a couple seasons ago, this is now still been an offense that is outright dominant and scary to go up against, led by Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey, of course. And even with their midseason struggles, with the frustration of this team seemingly going coming to a boiling point and potentially spelling the end of what would have been a great dynasty for the Kansas City Chiefs with the wheels seemingly falling off with constant offense of, of, of faux pas and mess ups constantly being offside. Everything seems out of whack. Sideline to sideline coaches and players. Everybody seemed un, 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 unhappy un, not satisfied with the production of the team. Now Right at the ship, and we're back to what we've seen before. Chiefs again in the Super Bowl. The modern-day dynasty of the NFL in terms of how dominant they've been in the abundance of, or rather the almost expectancy of this team being in the Super Bowl. But who will win between these two squads? And like I said, I have Kansas City, and it's because of essentially one big thing, and that it was actually two big things. It One, the X factor that we teased earlier, is going to be Mahomes versus Purdy. Now, yes, we've gone over, we've heard it all, of course, almost a cliche at this point in time. The quarterback versus quarterback matchup, who will, the the, the leader of the team, since you're at the, at the head of the QB position, wins the day. We've heard this all before, but it's significant because, again, with Brock Purdy, 
versus Patrick Mahomes. This is a stage where experience does, in fact, come into play. There has not been a situation where we have seen Brock Purdy at this big of a of, of, of a crossroads in terms of this big of a stage, this big of a moment, this much of a impactful potential win for both his career and his team and the entirety of an organization. There has not been as much pressure as we will see Brock Purdy be under up until this moment. There has been, again, up in, in regular season and in the playoffs, he has been able to shake off, at least in my estimation, the idea of being just a game manager. He has turned into a legitimate key piece in this 49ers offense. And I'm honing in on the offense specifically because that is where this game is going to be won. Yes, yes, uh, of course, scoring points wins the games. Uh, on, on the flip side, defense wins championships. But in this game, I don't see any team being able to really stop each other. Even with the dominating presence that we know and that we see that the 49ers have at their disposal, especially with what's being reported with one of the all-pro blockers or all-pro O-linemen for the Kansas City Chiefs being injured a week before the game actually comes to fruition. Though that could be, that could throw a whole new wrench in the system. We could see a situation where similar to when the Carolina Panthers went to the Super Bowl, my Carolina Panthers went to the Super Bowl, and lost. One of the biggest reasons why is because our O-line didn't have any protection due to the fact that Von Miller and his matchup, who was supposed to, I forget who the man was, but our starting O-lineman at that position, who was very, very good, if I may say, he got hurt before the game, and we had to put our backup O-lineman in at that position. And Von Miller and that defense just ran rough shot. Granted, that defense is still one of the best defenses that the NFL has seen in its totality. Carried Peyton Manning to that Super Bowl win and carried him throughout the entirety of that season when Peyton Manning was getting ready to retire. Literally, his retirement season. But still, I digress. Point still stands. We've seen this before where one man being out on the O-line can potentially affect the entirety of the game. We saw Patrick Mahomes have to struggle with a broken down O-line, putting up a Herculean performance against the Patriots, or what's the temp what was the Buccaneers, uh, against Tom Brady. I believe it was against Tom Brady and the Bucks, if I remember correctly, when they got to the Super Bowl and faced off against them because there was nobody able to actually block for Patrick. And he was making Herculean efforts. Again, I or rather not again because I haven't said this before on this show. Arguably the greatest passing performance I've seen out of a QB in the history of me watching football. Not not because of the numbers, because nearly every throw under pressure with them out the pocket, even in crunch time, from start to finish, he was on point. Throws that shouldn't be possible, those that shouldn't be even imagined, were made and were thrown only where his wide receivers could catch. Where only Tyreek Hill could catch it. Where only Sammy Watkins could catch it. Where only Travis Kelsey could catch it. And they were just dropped. But it was, I've never seen ball placement in that, in that strenuous of consistent situations that we saw Patrick Mahomes in. Never saw it done, but done before. Dropped or no drop. That was incredible. That was incredible. So, with that being the case, again, we've seen history do this before. And we've seen what it can do. And affect great quarterbacks, again, just like Patrick Mahomes, just like Cam Newton. When your O-line fails, everything can falter. And one man can affect the entire performance of the blocking for this team. If, since that's the case, 
with Nick Bosa and that defensive line, just defense as a whole for the 49ers, going up against Patrick Mahomes, yes, even though the dynamic offense is formidable and has found this groove again, especially in playoffs, now we are looking at a situation where going up against the 49ers, we could see that same history come up again. And Patrick Mahomes, again, just like when he went against Tom Brady, having to be on the run for his life because the O-line cannot block like necessary and give him time to do his magic like we've seen him do time and time again. So that very well can happen. But again, I think it's going to be a shootout. I think it's going to be outright offense, left, right, and center. And I really believe that we could see that Patrick Mahomes versus Purdy is going to be the essentially the expect. If Brock Purdy can play up to the caliber of Patrick Mahomes, which is a tall task to ask, but still, if he gets it done, we can see we can see a situation where everybody rooting against the Chiefs finally gets their wish, and we see the 49ers win the Super Bowl. Christian McCaffrey gets a, gets the ring. George Kittle gets the ring. Steve Wilkes gets the ring again. I hope on him because he was coach. He was coach of the Carolina Panthers. This would be a full circle moment as a fan of those two seeing them win. Hey, it'd be great. I ain't got the dog in the fight. I'm just telling you what would be cool to see. But that doesn't mean that's who I got winning. Again, I have the Chiefs winning, but it could be a very real situation where we have this team or these teams in an outright shootout. It comes down to if the pressure of the moment will be too big for Brock Purdy to actually be able to perform like we've seen him do throughout the season. And if that's the case, good gosh, then we can see a wipeout. But beyond just the X factor of whether Patrick Mahomes and Brock Purdy can play on the same level of each other, really, if Purdy can play on the level of Patrick Mahomes, big, even bigger than that, arguably, is on the side of San Francisco. And what did we see in their game against Detroit to get to the Super Bowl, they were down 24-7. This is why I keep harping on the offense so much because of the fact that their offense looked dead to rights against Detroit. And with how dominating they were against the Detroit, or, or how dominated they were by the Detroit Pistons, not Pistons, good gosh, how much they were dominated by the defense of the Detroit Lions, excuse me, my goodness, going through everything in the world of sports in my mind. I apologize. Let me slow down a little bit. With how much they were dominated by the defense of the Detroit Lions in their championship game to get to the Super Bowl, and how much it looked like they were in dire straits, it took an outright master class in the second half of them to come back. And an outright falling out by Detroit not just on the defensive end, but on the offensive end, to then only score, I believe, one more touchdown after that slew of just dominating offense in the first half, being up 24-7, making, again, in my opinion, the best-built team in football look like a facade, a joke. This is a situation where we have to say, if you all fall in that rut again, if you're San Francisco, you have no shot. Because Detroit, from an experience standpoint, has had such a fast rise to, uh, to come up. But they have been in it for so long that them faltering like this, while it was shocking, not necessarily is it a surprise, but it is a building block. Hey, you got to the championship game. One game, one win, one win away from a Super Bowl performance. You ain't been here before. 
you got up and you lost the mojo that got you there. You you gave up momentum. You essentially fought in the biggest moment to this point in your franchise. Hey, we can give that a pass. We can give it a pass. Understandable to some degree. If you want to make some form of of why, try, trying to get some reasoning, provide some level of understanding and insight as to why in the world could that collapse happen. That is totally different from this. Because now you're going up against, again, a man and an offense and a head coach in Andy Reid who has not only one of the most dynamic offenses in the, in the NFL, but has a quarterback who's gone against the best of the best and majority of the time has come, came out on top and has had stellar performances. And has, whenever he plays, it's almost like it's, it's he plays with the freedom of a regular season game, even though it's the biggest moment of the year, which is insane. And because of that cool, calm, collected, yet free-flowing nature that we see Patrick Mahomes play at, seemingly effortless, he plays with no weight. And because he doesn't play with any weight, he plays with no really fear of failure. One of the biggest reasons why he was able to make all those pinpoint throws in the Super Bowl against Tom Brady was because despite him being under so much pressure, everything seemed to just shake off of him. No, the, the moment still seemed like, eh, I just got to do what I got to do. Just make the throw. It seemed effortless because he didn't let it get to him. Simply. Just made magic and adapted to what was happening. Still played great in the biggest moment, though it was a loss. This is, a, this is why against Brock Purdy in that offense, you nearly collapsed in not even the biggest moment of the year, the biggest moment up until that point, with it being, with it being leading the, the, the championship game for the Super Bowl. But this is different. You fold here. You're not getting it back. You're not getting that momentum back. You are not getting that ability to make a comeback, most likely, if you fold and falter with the biggest game with the Super Bowl on the line against this squad who has countless times came through and produced, has been nigh unstoppable, has been or has the best duo in football in Mahomes and Kelsey. Akin to Brady and Grunt. This is what akin to Peyton Manning, Marvin Harrison, Jerry Rice, and Joe Montana. We're seeing something special. All of that compounds on the pressure when it goes to what you're facing. And Jimmy Garoppolo couldn't do it when he went up against him. He had, again, phenomenal team. He couldn't do it when he faced Patrick Mahomes in the Super Bowl. Now in a rematch for NFL glory. You're in the same position against the same team relatively, minus some pieces. Are you going to be able to not let the moment get bigger than you and solidify yourself if you're Brock Purdy as not a game manager but a legitimate piece because Garoppolo couldn't do that. He was indeed a game manager, which again, isn't bad, but it's just what he was. 
And because he couldn't play out of that stigma, play above that level, what did we see? Patrick Mahomes went. And the offense that should have been a lot more potent was held null and, held to null and void. Now going up against Patrick Mahomes as Brock Purdy, you have an opportunity to do something different, be something different, make the statement that needs to be made. Because if you don't, and you get, dare I say, you get back into that rut that you got against Detroit, this isn't, this is going to be it. It's going to be done. And we'll see Chiefs as NFL champs, at least in my estimation. But we just have to wait and see. And I can't wait until Sunday because it's going to be a phenomenal game to watch. Get your friends, get your family, get your food ready because it's going to be something spectacular. And we're going to witness history one way or another. We're going to witness history. There's a lot at stake for both of these people. Again, 49ers add another championship and Brock Purdy, hey, all of a sudden becomes a legit talent. And that whole team lives up to what they were or what they seem to be, which is a dominating force that can actually rival Kansas City as the other big dog in the NFL. Or Patrick Mahomes has another ring to his legacy. Andy Reid has another ring to his legacy. We and we get to witness also, Travis Kelsey has another ring to his legacy. And we get to witness the, I guess, solidifying of a legitimate dynasty in the world in today's NFL. After the Tom Brady era. Because some people say a dynasty isn't until you go back to back or win X amount in X amount of years. Well, this will be what? His third Super Bowl in what? Six years? Maybe three out of the last four? If he does that and going back to back, my goodness. Oh, we talking about at this young of an age? Yeah, we're talking about something different. We are talking about something incredibly different. We're talking about a situation where we just got through saying that Tom Brady solidified himself as the greatest quarterback in NFL history after his long and illustrious career. But brother's picking up steam quick and in a hurry. And he does this. While still budding, while still evolving into his prime, as in he's in it, but he's not. I dare say we haven't seen the best of the best when it comes to Patrick Mahomes. Good gosh, we're witnessing something special—a once-in-a-lifetime talent with accolades to boot. Oh, it's going to be special! And I can't wait to see it. Trust you and me. Also, covering the world from the world of the. NFL to the world of the NBA. This has been a conversation I've been wanting to have for a while. Talking about the new, the 65 gang rule has not been in under immense scrutiny and immense um, ire by, by NBA fans and players due to the fact that now one of the biggest stars in the, in the NBA in Joel Embiid will be most likely indexed from the MVP conversation as he has missed more or as he has will fall under the 65-game window with him, I believe, tearing his meniscus in his knee and getting surgery, being out for, I believe, four weeks, maybe more, a little over a month, if not a month, on the dot. And he's gone. Most likely the, the leading MVP candidate, my pick for MVP this year, with how dominant he was this season, or has been this season, averaging 35, just about 36, 12, and uh, I believe four, 
becoming an unstoppable force in the world of the NBA. The scoring highest average in the NBA just a point score of anybody. Believe it, 30, yeah, 36.5, just about above Lucas 35 points a game on average. And he's it's been it's been dominant. An all-time great talent playing at an all-time high. Again, playing better than the last MVP season. On a team that should have been worse, but now is doing pretty well this season. Ex- exceeding my expectations for what they would have been this season when they lost James Harden and when it seemed like everything was falling out from under Philly. Now, hey, they are, they're flying high. Tyrese Max has been seen, is being seen as an all-star snub. Again, Joel Embiid's playing like Joel Embiid and the rest of that team has been playing great. He has been the leader and the driving force. Now he's done. At least for a month. Potentially, if they choose to sit him until the playoffs all year. Who knows what may happen. But at minimum, he's out for a month. Because of that, most likely won't be considered for MVP consideration. Because, like I said before, out for 65, out for, will miss the 65-game threshold, excuse me, that the NBA instated for all awards to be won. MVP, Defensive Player of the Year, uh, Sixth Man of the Year, whatever you want to call it. As well as, I believe, first team as well. Potential, I, I believe. I could be wrong. But either way, point still stands. Now with this being a legitimate situation, everybody being up in arms. Also, Ty, uh, Tyrese Halliburton, close to missing out on legitimate awards this year because he's, I believe, 13 games or less under that 65-game window. He could also miss his opportunity to win legitimate awards this season. A couple of the players as well. So here's the real question. Is it right that the NFL added, or the NBA, excuse me, added this rule into the league? Having a minimum, having a standard that players need to be able to be healthy or a minimum just play in in order to be considered for major awards and accomplishments like the MVP. And yes, they are right in terms of being angry. But also, they're wrong in terms of their anger as well. Why do I say that? NBA fans and players, want, we want to see players that deserve to win, win. Yes, we want to see that. We want to see players up. We want to see them rewarded for their ability to play. We want to see them rewarded for the accomplishments that they do. And we don't want to see people that justly should be in the running or should win something, lose something. Miss out on major money. Because again, you don't win awards, you also miss out on money. Especially if you deserve it. And with this 65 game minimum, this is a situation where some people aren't going to get those awards. Due to them not being able to play. And is it sad? And is it frustrating? Yes, it is. Absolutely it is. I completely agree. It is maddening. But it's also not wrong. And here's why. Here's the main reason why. Then what you have to understand, you all brought this on yourself. If you are both NBA fans and players, you brought this on yourself when it came to why we have a standard of 65 games played minimum in the NBA. The minimum 65 game rule that the NBA put in is because of the players and fans. Because we are not going to sit here. I'm not going to sit here and act like that players and fans alike, or rather pundits, Experts, coaches, 
fucking panelist, whoever you want to say, Stephen A. Smith, Kendrick Perkins, Max Kellerman when he was there, anybody you want to name, I'm not going to sit here and act like all of you, as well as some players in the NBA, as well as fans, myself included, got upset hot with the NBA stars sitting out in the what what was called an epidemic of load management that swept through the NBA. We got on Kawhi Leonard. We got on LeBron. We got on AD. We got on Joel Embiid. We got on all of these big name stars for them not being available to play. We were complaining. People played money to come to your game. Why are you not playing? We kept throwing out the quote that Kobe was saying. As I paraphrase, Fans come to see the biggest stars in the world play. I'm not going to rob them of that. That's what Kobe was saying. Again, paraphrasing. It might as well have been what he was saying. Fans paid money to see me play. I'm coming to play and give everything I got. We use Jordan as a means to say, oh, he didn't sit out. He played healthy. He played 82 games, what, six, eight times? How many? At least 80 plus a bunch of times during the best of his career. He came in and put everything out when he was sick, flu game, injured, did it as much as he could, played until his body broke down. Remember, I believe he had an injury injury early, early in his career. I believe he tried to play through it until he just couldn't do it and had to sit out. But still, point still stands. We got on everybody today and lauded and applauded and brung up the old days of the NBA. Oh, we were scrappy. Oh, we played hard. We did. We played whenever it was time. We gave everything we had to this game. That's was that was the outright comparison that we made from the modern day NBA to the past NBA as to why players today are soft, weak, punks. They don't love the game. They don't care about the fans nor their own achievements. They only care about the playoffs. You should care about everything. Is that not what we were saying? If you can play, play. If, you're, if your timetable is up, you should be able to play. If it's a day-to-day injury that seems minuscule, you should be able to work through it. Kawhi, why do you keep on sitting out? You seem healthy. It seems like you're up to par. Why aren't you playing? The world is wrong with you. We got on Zion Williamson about it. Every player you can name We jumped on the bandwagon, getting at them for why they weren't playing when they seemed like they were healthy or not why when they seemed when it seemed like it was a a minuscule type injury or an injury that you should be able to play through. And you just don't. And load management was an epidemic, like I said before, that everybody hated. Now, NBA heard you. They set a standard. Understandably so. To get it so that players, if you want to make the extra money and gain the awards, the best ability is availability. Another quote that you and many other fans, were, and myself included, were throwing out in the world of sports. As to, again, to counteract the reasoning for why players were sitting out. So it's not a situation where we're looking and saying, oh, all of a sudden, We got a right to say, this is wrong. This is bad. Why is it dumb? Why is it stupid? When players, athletes, and 
pundits and fans and me were all saying that we hated it when we kept seeing stars sit out. We want to see the best of the best play, and we know they're available to play. Why aren't they playing? That was the concern. That was the problem. And we all said this needs to change. Now the NBA changes it. They add a minimum. They make an incentive so that players have to make an effort to be available, to be healthy, and be consistent, live up to the moniker of the best ability is availability from your stars all the way down to your role players because they got something on the line too. They could also make first team, second team, third team, whatever. They could make six men in the year. There's stuff on the line for everybody who is healthy. And yet, now we have a problem? What the world is wrong with you? How dare you all show this hypocrisy? This makes no sense. You as an NBA fan were consistently saying that this is a problem that the NBA needs to fix. And now they did something about it. And we're saying, why are you doing this? This is dumb. This is wrong. This is ridiculous. This is not good at all when it comes to the world of basketball. Not at all. You, you can't win. You can't win. I'll give this caveat to you. This Does the, does the standard needs to be lower? Does the standard of games need to go down from 65 to 60? Maybe even 55. Fine. I can capitulate to that. Is it too strong? There's an argument that can be made. Understand to a degree, big men like Joel Embiid who have been and are prone to more injuries because of how much they are down low in the post and consistently getting roughed up, hit. Dirty plays happen all the time under the rim that many refs miss. Physicality is a lot different for different positions. Understandable. I can understand that. I get that fully. No problem with that argument. So adjust it as needed. From 65 to 55, maybe 50, but that may be pushing it a little bit in my estimation. But still, not a problem if you want to lower it. But if you are sitting up there complaining about something that you said that was a problem, not even three years ago, you ain't got no right. Shut up and sit down. I'm sorry, I'm being frank. Shut up and sit down. There's no point in you talking. You have no voice in this matter because you called for this. You wanted this. You begged for this. You needed this. We were all saying, from LeBron all the way down to Joel, everybody, we were saying it was a problem that we see players sitting out doing nothing, constantly saying they got something going on, constantly being unavailable, never actually being in the game. Only caring about the playoffs and not actually being consistent up until later in the season. Taking games off willingly with injuries that to a degree some people said weren't even happening. So what the world is this? Why are we all of a sudden choosing to be such hypocrites when it comes to this conversation? This should not leave in terms of the rule and standard that the NBA set. This should not be something that the NBA should change. This should not be something that the NBA should choose to all of a sudden do away with. Yes, there needs to be an accountability for the players to be able to be healthy. You can't be missing 40 games and then still be in the money for MVP. That doesn't make any sense. No. That's a problem. We got to reward, reward people for being able to be consistent every time they step on the floor. Because if you can hold Michael Jordan to that standard, 
Why can't we hold players today? If you can complain about Kawhi missing games then, and then now saying that he should have a right to miss games now, in terms of it's too strict for him now, it makes no sense. You're flip-flopping on a conversation that you asked for and you wanted. Players, you all were saying that this is an issue, that this is a problem, that this is a situation that is, that is, that why aren't y'all playing when, when the games need to be played? Stars alike were saying, well, I hate the fact that we aren't playing the matchups against the best of the best. There are sound bites there. There are. And it makes no sense why all of a sudden this is something that is a problem. Players, fans, pundits, and me all said that we needed this. All, need, all said this was required. Now all of a sudden, we gets, the standard gets put in, and now we got a problem. Just because, oh my, it's working. There's going to be some people that get snubbed out of some stuff because they weren't able to be healthy. It, again, should it be lower? Absolutely. I ain't got a problem with arguing it should be lower than 65 games. It should, again, 55. I can argue for 50, but I ain't going no lower. But outside of that, there's an argument that it should go down, but there's no argument that you can give to say that it should be outright abolished. No. Oh, no, 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 no. Uh-uh, we can't do that. Stop doing that if you're thinking like that because it's not the right mentality. When we are all of a sudden having amnesia and forgetting what we were saying not even three years ago about players not being able to play, about them not being available, about not seeing KD or LeBron. Do you know, it has been, how long has it been since we've seen KD and LeBron? We got to see it twice this year. They, I believe they ain't faced off against each other in the same game since their last finals appearance in 2018. I believe that's the last time we ever saw Katie and LeBron play against each other. In all those years. Because somebody was out for whatever reason or another. Legitimate or not. Now we got to see them twice in a year. Potentially more. If the playoffs come around and they're making the play against each other. Point is, this can't be the situation where we're sitting here and saying, no, we don't need the rule. Yes, we do. Because we asked for it. Stop being a hypocritical person that it all of a sudden forgets what you were complaining about. We need to reward people that can consistently play. We need to reward people that can always be available. We need to reward people that are able to be rugged throughout the whole season while playing at a high level. There has to be some sort of standard. There has to be. Lowering it is completely understandable and justifiable to a certain degree. But beyond that, removing it, when we want to see competitive nature at its biggest and best, where the stars shine brightest, this is the way to do it. This is the way to do it. You can't complain, whether you're old head or not, you can't complain about past eras being so tough 
and then come now and say, why aren't, what, why are you taking away these awards from these people? When we installed the very system that keeps the people and players doing the same thing that you held your greats to in your day that you lauded and praised as to why they were so great, which was their consistent ability to play through anything. That's what you all said. Those of you who rah-rahed and, and threw up your pom-poms and celebrated and threw that in any fan today, the modern-day fan, threw it in our face as to why y'all generation's weak. Y'all don't really care about the game. All this stupid stuff. And then you want to come out and say, oh, they're robbing the players of their awards. No, they're not. They're putting the standard that you and I asked for. Put in the standard that some players ask for. Put in the standard that every single pundit, again, Stephen A. Smith, Matt Skelton, Michael Wilbur, his Kornheiser, uh, I believe is his name. Everybody, even Jason Whitlock, as much as I hate saying his name, much as I hate saying his name, good gosh. Again, I love everybody, but the actions of him, despicable, putrid and... I utterly despise outright lascivious. Words can nearly not describe the depth that this man has fallen to and done in his actions. Love him because I love everybody, but the actions and what he's done, I don't want to associate with him. Dare I say, I don't want to say his name. I always, always want to call him he who shall not be named. But that's a whole tirade for another day. Stephen A. Smith already went through that old debacle. You can go watch that. Hey, I, I'm not, I don't care who you are. I don't, I don't advocate for, or I don't not advocate for anybody. If something's good, go watch it. That rant by Stephen A., that's something good. You should go watch that. Absolutely. Laid out everything and more. As to why that person, again, he who shall not be named, is utterly despicable in his actions. But the point still stands as I digress. Every person, whether you like them or not, was calling for the availability of players to be something that needs to be held in a standard. How do we get people to care? How do we get people to play? How do we get people to consistently match up with the people that we want to see them play against? How do we get stars to play like stars on a nightly basis. This is the solution. And you want to go do away with it? Ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. This rule should stand. Plain and simple. This rule should stand. Shouldn't go away. Shouldn't be something that should rob the players. Because it doesn't. It rewards the very thing that you. Players. Pundits. Fans. And me, all called for. Accountability for availability. Because we want you to see, we want to see you play with consistency. That's all we asked. And we wanted people to stop sitting out when, when seemingly injuries weren't something that was hindering them. We got our wish, which is good. Because this was needed. This was needed. But it wasn't happening. Now it happened. And we're complaining. Ridiculous. It's a quality rule. 
needs some tuning, understandably, it should not go away. It shouldn't go away at all. Not at all. And now, switching, or rather, switching gears from the awards to a specific player that I wanted to talk about, specifically Victor Wimbenyama. We're going to get to Javante Tank Davis right after this, but really real quickly, before I forget. Talking about Victor Wimbenyama having his breakout year this year, I mean, a phenomenal rookie season, 20 points, 10 rebounds, three blocks a game in his first stint in the NBA, living up to everything that we thought this brother could be in terms of an outright difference maker and star in the making. But there was an argument, or rather a notion that was going around with the Spurs organization. And it was, could he be better? Should he be better? Should his numbers and production be even greater? Why is it that seemingly with how dominant Wimby is right now, it doesn't, it feels like there's something missing to a degree. And I think I found out what that thing is. That thing is Victor Wimbyama's teammates. He's not getting used enough on the San Antonio Spurs. Now, how dare you say that, Jean-Luc? Victor Wimbyama's got 31.5% or 31.5 usage rating in the NBA. Fourth highest in the league. Only, I believe, only under Giannis, Joel, and Luka. And maybe LeBron. Maybe he's fifth. Fifth or fourth. One of the two. Either way, in the top ten. And solidified in the top five. Touches the ball every time he gets down the floor. He runs the floor consistently. We've seen him do it. Pull up from three. Seemingly, he gets touches all the time. Why would you say that he's not getting used enough? It's because that 20 points a game could easily be 25. Could easily be. It's rare that I say this, but this is the man that should be able, when he reached his prime, to drop 30 every single night. He's got that much potential in him with how well-rounded he already is at the NBA level, with him being a center, with him having handles like a guard. And we've heard that countless times before, but this is something different. This man's doing, pulling out sham gods on centers, in traffic, going behind the back to score laps. Great court vision. Can shoot turnarounds and three points. Needs to be, what, be a better three point shooter if he wants to make that a uh, solidified part of his game. But right now, at 7 3, brother, it's still great because we don't see that often. The fluidity of his game and the understanding, the feel, the vision, the touch, it's all something of a Hall of Fame level in the making. It's got that special it factor to it. But still, it could be even better. Because of people like Shohan and Vassell, other guards on the Spurs, his production is being stifled. He's being squashed. He's not being able to be his full potential. And yes, he, he he's doing all the, the right things in terms of media, answering the questions about why he's not getting the ball. I understand that. But let's call it like we see it. Spurs players are being selfish. Shohan's been selfish. Vassell's been selfish. A couple of players beyond them have been selfish. Those are the two biggest ones because they're not only the two biggest names, but two of the biggest producers for that team. Especially Vassell, who's been one of the better scorers for that squad. I believe he's been averaging, what, 19, 20 points a game, if I remember correctly. Even still, somewhere around that range. This is a situation we are looking at Wimby being looked off by his own guards when he's wide open in the paint. 
A game winner when you only needed a two. We saw Vassell take a step back three. After Victor Wominyama had done a pick and roll, and his roll was wide open for a lot because there was nobody that was catching it. If he just threw it up, tossed it in the air, there was nobody that was catching it except for Victor. Simple dunk or tip in, game's over, Spurs win. Countless compilations you can make of videos of Victor Wimbayama being in the paint wide open with a mismatch or open with nobody around him. Though he's the biggest threat and the best player on the floor. And he doesn't get the ball. At all. At all. I think he's had, what, one, 30, maybe one or two 30-point games this year when he could have easily had way more because of how proficient he already is and how at this stage in his career, with people not adapting to him also, and the fluidity at which he's able to move and outmaneuver anybody that he's matched up with in terms of, of big men and guards he can just dominate and shoot over, do whatever he wants with. This is, no, no. It can't be that we're looking at this man and saying, what more do you need to do? Because he doesn't need to do anymore. It's the teammates that need to feed him when it is apropos, when it's applicable. The usage rate is telling a lie in this sense because even with them being used so high and getting touches every time down the floor, it's when. It's when he gets touches. That's the issue. Can he make his own shot? Absolutely. Can he create whatever he wants? At seemingly, yes. And he'll only further progress from here. Does he need to work on size and get bigger and stronger? Yes, that's with any, nearly any player that gets drafted to the NBA. Nearly anybody gets drafted in the NBA. They have to build up strength. Giannis wasn't Giannis. He put on 54 pounds of muscle before he became the prime beast, Greek freak that we know him as today. But outside of that, he still we still saw, okay, there's something there, something building. With Victor, it's the same thing. When Benyama's got that on him in terms of the potential and ceiling, it's great. Clearly, it's open to it's as open as the blue sky outside. But the problem is when you have a team. Not I can't even put this on Pop. More so, it's the team. Now Pop would be great if he got on that to change that. The point still stands: the team that Victor Wembanyama is on has consistently failed at maximizing his ability to perform and produce. They should not be this bad if we're being all honest. There's, if they use Victor like Victor needs to be used to the fullest of his capacity, especially when he's open, they probably wouldn't be one of the worst teams in the NBA as they are right now. They wouldn't be in this dire of straits. And yes, I know they don't have a whole lot of talent, but it shouldn't be this bad. It, it shouldn't. We've heard this about Detroit. Oh, Detroit shouldn't be this bad with the personnel that they got around them, but they are. This is a situation where with Victor as big of a difference maker and defensive savant and offensive unicorn that we're seeing him as only getting better they should not be this bad with a brother that has three blocks a game and averaging 20 and is already seen as a major threat in the post offensively and can take on anybody can take on anybody off the dribble or shoot above him Either you're too slow or you're too small. I can do whatever I want. 
and they just don't give it to them in situations that would put them either extend their lead or quickly get the ball back in their corner in terms of rolling with momentum. They just don't. Vassell, Shohan, and the rest of the Spurs organization are willingly looking off, not using, and isolating in a bad way. Isolating Victor Wimbanyama on the offensive end, which is making what should be, what is already a very impressive and a leading rookie of the year campaign. It should be even better, but it's not because of selfishness, outright selfishness. All because players want to be in their own isolated game, be the star, be the number one option when you're not. You get what we see with Spurs. Dysfunction, no continuity, no chemistry, and a player who just by him flowing, not even trying to stir up any controversy, not demanding, demanding things, going through his rookie campaign and his rookie year like an upstanding rookie star. Just going through the motions of the life of the NBA. He's averaging 20. Not throwing his weight around. He's averaging three blocks a game. Averaging 10 rebounds. Has solidified himself as the most dominant uh, rookie in this rookie class. And has set himself up to be an outright megastar. Only can get better from here. And he's just taking everything on the chin. And he's not trying to be bullish in his the way he maneuvers and demands. He hasn't even demanded anything. He's just saying, okay, hey, it's gonna take time. Doing the 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 quintessential born and made born and bred star mentality of it'll come. Eventually it'll come. And he's putting up these types of numbers, not demanding anything. This is all the failure of his teammates for being selfish and to a degree stupid with them trying to be the main event when they're not. Hurting not just themselves, but the team as a whole. Victor's not getting hurt by this. No. Victor would just leave once his rookie contract. He'll go. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Even with Pop there, this type of consistent stupidity by, the, by these players, either they're gone or he's gone between the tenure of this time in the Spurs organization. One of the two's happening. Because he may not be saying much, but he definitely sees what's going on. LeBron went through this, this same thing with Darius Miles when he first got on the Cleveland Cavaliers. Again, I don't know why Darius Miles thought he was going to be something on that Cavs squad. Best thing he's done for is a triple alley oop than when he was on the Clippers. Outside of that, no. What can a rookie teach me? Apparently, more than you've ever known in your career. But that's a whole nother conversation for another day. He turns to Victor Wimbanyama. He'll be quiet. He'll stay quiet. He'll keep his head down. But if stuff doesn't change in this organization by the time his rookie contract is up, either they're gone. Either the problem gets rooted out in terms of the teammates gets moved or Victor moves out and goes to a situation that actually wants him and will actually build and get players that understand what the main thing is. Victor's number one. Everybody else is number two or lower. It's not bad. 
But it's our best chance to win. Plain and simple. But now moving on from the world of boxing into the world in, uh, or in, from the world of the NBA, excuse me, into the world of boxing. And since we're talking about boxing, we got to step into the ring. That is right. Ring the bell. Let's get it started. Round one of this show or of this segment going underway. Talking about Javante Tank Davis. Oh, yes, we have to talk about Tank. Because we know the boxing world is a buzz. We now have a solidified date for Tyson Fury. Quickly before I get on, get into Tank. Tyson Fury versus Alexander Usyk officially will be having, happening on May 18th. Seemingly, Usyk will not fight um, Herkovich for the IBF title. It's going to be straight training camp, training camp, training camp. Up until the Fury and Usyk main event. I believe it's in May. Yeah, May, May 18th, I believe. During that summer, a slew of things happening that summer as well. With Better BF and Bebo also looking to fight, or from what I can gather, a done deal on June 1st to fight for the Undisputed Super Lightweight title. Not Super Lightweight. Undisputed Lightweight title. Good gosh, what Super Lightweight? Look at the world. She's cruiserweight. God, what's wrong with me? Oh, Lord. My bad. So sorry. So sorry. Bebo and Better BF will fight for the Undisputed Light Heavyweight title in June. Undisputed Heavyweight Championship is happening in May. Everything's starting to line up. And now Tank has been making runs again on the internet, calling out Connor Ben at the Connor Ben's performance against, I believe, Pistol Pete Dobbs. Dobson, excuse me. Was his nickname. In a performance, if you didn't see, quickly breaking down that fight, a performance between Connor Ben and Dobson that was subpar, really subpar him being off of the PEDs yes, he did, he was on him let's be frank, he was on him he was on performance enhancing drugs he got popped legitimately now that they got taken away he doesn't, he's not the same fighter but he still got the speed still got the explosiveness doesn't have the power the power is gone, the pop is gone the biggest thing to make him, that made him such a impactful fighter now Seems like it's not there anymore. Really does. Even in the fight before this, in his first return, though he did win that fight, I believe, by stoppage, it was still, with how much offense he was throwing out, it wasn't getting the job done like we had seen in the past. Didn't have the same effect on his opponents like we had seen in the past with the drugs. Not with them off it, especially against Pistol Pete Dobson. No, 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 no. Not happening no more. Now, I believe 12-round decision, he won it. Don't get me wrong, he did win the fight. More offense, kept the pressure on, was aggressive, threw combination, did everything that you would expect Conor Ben to do. But it wasn't the Conor Ben that we knew. Because this, this, is, this is the real Conor Ben. This is the Conor Ben off drugs, just straighten him. Now it looks like he doesn't have power. And... He was getting caught a couple of times against Dobson. Let's not get it twisted. Just because it went 12 rounds, there's, there still can be some bad wins in a win for a fighter. This could be considered a bad win because even with him winning most of the rounds against Dobson, Dobson was able, against uber-aggressive fighter, against somebody with the hand speed and explosiveness of Conor Ben, to be able to sit in the pocket, to be able to evade shots, block, shoulder roll, without having to take a bunch of steps. Catch Conor Ben with counters. More than I would love to see from Conor Ben. 
in terms of his ability to be a defensively great fighter. Which now I don't think he really is. But still, it's a conversation for another day. Able to stay in the pocket. Talking about Dobson. Able to stay in the pocket, not move, and still be able to block and deflect, parry, and slip. All while being right in front of a very speedy and explosive Conor Ben. In a fight that should have been and a complete uh, on paper should have been a whitewash. No, this is this ain't a good win. Hence, why Javante Tank Davis is calling him out. But the main thing now, now that we broke down that fight with Conor Ben and Dobson, the main thing why it's so interesting is because we are now asking questions. Well, I'm asking questions. Why in the world are you calling him out? Why is Javante Tank Davis calling out? Conor Ben. Now. Why is he calling him out now? Oh, well, he's a named fighter, some might say. Well, that means nothing. Why? Did we not see him say that he is comfortable at 135? He's uncomfortable fighting at 140. He doesn't want to fight at 140. Him, his trainer, and Ellerby all said that he doesn't feel right moving up to 140. Fighting at 135 is his weight class. Plain and simple. All of a sudden, now you want to call out a 147-pounder in Conor Ben, who came into the fight, mind you, at 150. Weighed in, weighed in at 150. The night of the fight was 170. And you want to fight him. But you don't want to fight Devin Haney at 140. You don't want to move up to fight Tio Fimo Lopez at 140. You don't want to fight the big-name stars at 140. You didn't want to fight Ryan Garcia at 140. But you want to fight Conor Ben. And you fought Mario Barrios. So this is where we have to say. Hypocrisy is at an all-time high. This is a duck. It's an outright. We have to say it now. I'm sorry. We have to say it now. You can't go out of your way. Make statements of 135 is my weight class. Fine. And then you go and call out Conor Ben. Say you'll fight him at 147, give him a month and change. This is ridiculous. It's stupid, ignorant, and reeks of somebody who doesn't want to truly make a name for his legacy. Whatever I said before on this show, the main thing about Javante Tank Davis, he doesn't have names. He's not on my pound for pound list outright. Yes, his talent can be pound for pound level, but he has not achieved anything since he beat Isaac Cruz. He ain't achieved nothing. Ain't won a title. He got a title, granted, at 135 because it was given to him since Devin Haney relinquished the belts. But he didn't want it, win a title, which, again, I don't hold against him because, again, I don't hold against Devin Haney. It just happened. It, I would love it to be a super series for them to earn the titles instead. But that's a whole other conversation. Point still stands. I don't hold that against him for getting a title given to him by the commission that was get relinquished by another champion. That just, it just happened. Okay, fine. That's not, that's not the problem. The problem is, even before that, you ain't fighting nobody. And the biggest thing that you fought was a weight-drained Ryan Garcia who, mind you, while he is the biggest name that you've ever fought in your career, he was nowhere near the talent level. I have been saying on this show, talent is what makes you great. Who you fight, when you fight him, is what matters. And if you clean out divisions, 
going through the best of the best, you are greater than somebody who, while their talent may be at the par, you they don't challenge anybody. Tank ain't challenged nobody of note. He has. It looked like it was going to happen after he faced off against Isaac Cruz and Hector Garcia, but now, no. Ever since Ryan Garcia has been either dead silence or him essentially evading and not moving up when he needs to move up. If he wanted to, he could go on and be undisputed. No problem there at 135. If you want to campaign there, campaign there. Fight. Win. Dominate. Do it. Fine. Go ahead. Not a problem. But if that's what you want to do, that's what you want to do. If that's what you say you're comfortable, which he has been quoted saying. So since that's the case, why haven't you done it yet? Even with the diminished 135, you ain't fought. Even with the diminished 135 caliber, fight, you ain't fought yet. At that weight class, at lightweight, you ain't fought. Shakur Stevenson, before retirement, even after the worst performance of his career, which doesn't stigma him as a boring fighter, it was just a bad fight because of a hand injury, but still a bad fight nonetheless. Point still stands. You could have called him out like you're calling out Conor Ben after a bad performance, but you didn't. Did you? No. You could have went and moved on up since you see that the lightweight division outside of Lomachenko and Shakur Stevenson is most, for the most part, barren. You could have moved up, gone to fight, called out Devin Haney, called out Tiffany Lopez, called out Shabriel Matias. My gosh, if you knocked out Shabriel Matias, the boogeyman of that division, the brother who, again, got a body on his record legitimately, this is the, would make all the news in the world. Would make you an even bigger killer. No problem. No problem. But you don't. You want to call out after saying you didn't want to fight at 135. Or rather, you didn't want to fight at 140 because you weren't comfortable. LRB and your trainers, I believe, saying that. Also, you then now want to go and fight Conor Ben at 147 at his weight class. You're willing to move up for that. Yeah, it's a duck. This had, we have to call it a duck. There's no other thing to say but it's a duck. We have to. You went out of your way to say you didn't want nothing to do with anything above 135 and then you go and call out somebody at 147 and say give me a month and change and I'll knock you out. No, there's no excuse for that. None at all. And you have been relentlessly calling out Conor Ben. You've been and you back and forth saying okay it's going to get done just give it a moment. We're almost there. That's what Tank's words not mine. This is what's been going on. This is hypocrisy at its finest. Javante Tank Davis you are a duck outright you're a duck you left crumbs on the table and now you're saying you don't want to eat them yet you'll go to a different table and gladly eat off of their plate but this food's better saying you don't like it somebody of worse caliber just cooked a bigger portion and now you're saying on one hand oh that portion's too much for me now you're saying oh yeah that's all you can eat I'm down for it Give me some second to prep. I'll be ready to go. This is ridiculous. It's stupid. You ducking people. You're running. That's why you have to call it running. Your talent is world class. Your ability to be champion should have already been established by now. You beat Leo Santa Cruz. You beat Gilboa, though he had a torn Achilles. You beat everybody else in a hot start in your career. And then get from under the wing of Floyd Mayweather. Now we're expecting big fights from you and you opt to do nothing. Biggest fight was Ryan Garcia, who, again, from a talent perspective, nowhere close to your ability. 
I said that he could win if he unlocked the full potential and actually adapted and went beyond just the left hook. Do do that and maximize your size. You got a shot. And he didn't do it. He did it all for about a couple seconds. When he had Tank in the corner, was throwing jabs and straights while Tank was trying to defend, actually scoring and having success before he got knocked down. It was an inkling, but that was it. Nothing more. He got outclassed, outmatched, and knocked out. Plain and simple. Absolutely. No doubt about it. Outside of that, though, you've done nothing. You forget riding momentum. You just, you've just been sitting on your couch because you won't take any legitimate challenges. And I, it's so it's frustrating. It really is. It really is. Because I don't understand why you, as the big dog that you claim to be, would do something so stupid as to run and then all of a sudden say, oh, yeah, I'll fight anybody against an opponent that the only reason why you caught you want to fight him is because he against, again, Dobson. Looked so easy to hit. Mind you, like I said before, Dobson was countering Conor Ben legitimately, was catching him flush, was able to sit in the pocket and operate. Yes, he lost the fight, but the fact that he was able to sit in the pocket against Conor Ben and didn't have to move back in order to find some success, was able to counter him by standing still with a Philly Shell style offense. There's no way in the world that you can't tell me Tank saw that and said, oh yes, barbecue chicken to Quote Shaquille O'Neal, oh, it's time to eat. I'm ready to go. I can knock him out easy. Can he do it? Absolutely he can. Absolutely he can. I'm not fighting that. What I'm fighting is the fact that you now won't fight at 147. Or excuse me, now you'll fight at 147 now, but you won't fight at 140 against Ryan Garcia. You won't fight at 140 against Javante Tank Davis. You won't go and move up to fight Teofimo Lopez. You won't go and fight any of these other fighters beyond Mario Barrios and seemingly Conor Ben. It's hypocrisy at its finest. The word is wrong. How? How can we support this? We can't support this. You are a bum for acting this way. That's what you are. You're a bum acting this way. Javante Tank Davis is a bum for making this move. He is acting like a bum. Fury acted like a bum when he ran against Usyk. And we are calling, I'm calling Tank a bum for running against Devin Haney. And that whole light, uh, super lightweight division. The whole super lightweight division. You're a bum. That's what you are for making this idiotic move. How dare you try to make us see you as great and you don't achieve it? It's ridiculous. I am sick and tired of fans consistently having a notion that they want to support and love a, a fighter, which I have no problem with, but then dog on other people for saying, oh, your guy could never be my guy when your own fighter won't fight him. This is, no, this, we have no bias on here. Everybody can be called a bum if it's applied to him. And it's applied to Jack Davis. It applied to Floyd when he acted like a bum and didn't fight Ronald Wright. When he didn't fight Keith Thurman. We can go down the list of fighters who avoided fighters that should have the fight should have been made. And they in that instance, a bum. 
nothing for the entirety of the career, but as that, that point in time, you ran for what should have been. And with Javante Tate Davis following in Floyd's footsteps, seemingly, and avoiding Devin Haney, avoiding 140, not even calling out Shakur Stevenson in your own weight class, that would shut all of this up. If we're being completely honest, that would shut all of this up. You go and you call out Shakur Stevenson. Get him out of retirement. He said it'll only come out if the name is applicable. You call out Shakur, fight at your weight class, 135, which he is in. Hey, okay, that's great. That's one name on the level of your talent. And since you moved up, no problem. Still needs to be more consistent, but that would at least stop the noise and give us an inkling of, okay, maybe he's potentially going to try to clear out the division, beat every major name here, and then move up. No. Uh-uh. You can't sit in the interview and call out all these different names that you say you want on your hit list that you don't even want to say yourself. Let the interviewer say it for you, which is ignorant. If you're confident, be confident. If you want it, say you want it. Benavidez said he wanted Canelo. Charlo said he didn't want Benavidez. If he wanted it, he would have called for it. If he wanted that smoke, he would have called for that smoke. Benavidez called for that smoke. They've been calling for that smoke. Everybody been, every, every, most significant fighters have been calling for that smoke. Usyk's been calling for that smoke. AJ's been calling for the smoke. Say what you want about him. He's been calling for the smoke about his entire career. He's faced every legitimate name. And went back immediately and tried to retry. Like when he went against Usyk. Respect, mad respect him. Ne nothing against him at all. I have nothing bad to say. In terms of him as a fighter. Talent, I have my gripes. Seemed like he fixed him. That's a whole other conversation. That's analyzing and breaking down the fighter. But talking about the character of the fighter and who he is as a fighter, that's a completely different story. AJ, I ain't got no qualms. Benavides, I ain't got no qualms. Canelo, I ain't got no qualms if he's got a plan to fight Benavides at the end of his PVC contract. At some point in time. No problem there. As long as it happens. Should happen next, but as long as it happens in a timely manner, no problem. Again, needs to happen next. But still, all these people have wanted it. Garcia called for it, tried to make it happen. Then called out Devin Haney, went away from Devin Haney. Again, did this, what's going after the smart move of Roland Romero. Then guess what? When that fell through, what happened? He went right back to Devin Haney. We back in, we back in talks. Wanting to go after a title against the easier of the opponents, then make it a unification bout against you. Now, boom. Okay. If I didn't work out Roland Romero, he would have still beat him. But still, Roland Romero would have lost two um, Ryan Garcia. Now Roland Romero is fighting Isaac Cruz, but the point still stands. Once that broke down, he went back to the table and still is making at least perception and is pushing for this fight to happen. So, hey, and being blatant about it. Hey, I walked away. I came back. I'm knocking, I'm knocking Devin Haney out, plain and simple. Teofimo Lopez is going once he uh, once he faces uh, Ortiz, I uh, believe this Thursday. Yeah, I believe, yeah, yeah, this Thursday. He's probably going to call out Devin Haney or Sabrina Tears. Most likely. 
I could see it happening. I could see it happening. But there, all of these names are at least going after and fighting against people who either got belts or people that are above their their talent level. And dare I say weight class, like Usyk moving up from cruiserweight to heavyweight. Now fighting Tyson Fury. You see what the problem is with Tank? He looks like a bum because he's not fighting the best of the best. We have been waiting for him to fight the best of the best on a consistent level. And he is at the cusp of that benchmark of now you've got the name recognition. You can literally bully yourself into a title fight. You could, but you won't. You could bully yourself to fight Devin You could bully yourself in line to fight Tilvion Lopez. You could use your name Cachet to move up to 140 and campaign whatever. You could use your Cachet to fight Shakur Stevenson at your own weight class right now. Or Lomachenko. Yeah, you won't. Yeah, you won't. It's ridiculous. Tank is being a bump. Plain and simple. I don't care if you're a fan. I don't care if you love him. I don't care if you hate him. This is just the un, unmitigated truth. He is a bum for this type of move. To fight, want to fight Conor Ben after making all this noise about being comfortable at 135 and being not comfortable and not wanting to fight at 140. And then you want to fight somebody at 147. All because now all of a sudden they ain't good enough. Nobody should be good enough for you at 147 because nobody should be in your viewpoint per your words, if they are above 135. And you want to go and fight at 147. A buddy who came in at 170. Night of the fight. You want to fight at essentially at 170. You want to fight a light heavyweight. At Again, Conor Ben came into the fight the night of at 170. Hence why I say you essentially want to fight a light heavyweight. But you don't want to fight Devin Haney. You don't want to fight Teofimo Lopez. You don't even want to fight Shakur Stevenson in your own weight class. There's nothing I will never, I mean never, hold anything against anybody unless it's justifiable. And right now, take you're a bum because you ducked what should have been the easiest decision in the world. This should have been prime time for your Javante Tank Davis to prove everything you are is true and valid. You are in your prime against everybody else who has reached their prime. You got an opportunity to, and within the span of two years, get, if you really want to make it great in the span of one year, if you fought four times and cleaned out 140, or at least got three of the four belts with one fight as a ingratiating fight into the world of 140, get yourself acclimated, and you go and clean out then Sabril Matias, the winner of Oliver Mayo and Isaac Cruz, and then either Devin Haney or Teofimo Lopez? Hey, all right. That's perfectly fine. We love that. We want to see that. Or in the best case scenario, you go in the span of a year and you fight Ryan Garcia, Teofimo Lopez, and, oh, excuse me, Ryan Garcia, Devin Haney, and either Teofimo Lopez or Sabrina Matias. If you don't get all three, as long as Devin Haney 
and Sabrina Matias are somewhere in the picture and you face them, I ain't got no problem at all. We can save Teofimo Lopez for after that to make it even bigger unification point. But any combination of those three, if not four, champions outright, again, the winner of Isaac Cruz and Rolly Romero, but any of those four champions, you face three of them in a year, my gosh, wonders. That's some old school type stuff. That is some 80s and 70s type stuff. That is great. That's phenomenal. But will you do it? The answer is no. Because you just showed your true colors seemingly right now. You went against everything that you were saying was the reason why you didn't want to move up to 140. You went against everything that you claimed was the problem with moving up to 140. Why you weren't going to fight Devin Haney. Why you won't fight Tiffany Lopez or anybody else at that super lightweight division. Yet, you will fight a welterweight that balloons up to a light heavyweight within the same weight class as Arthur Bedeviev and Dimitri Bivo. You will fight them. Or you will fight him and Conor Ben, who arrived at 170 on the night of the fight. But you won't fight Devin Haney? A mere five-pound difference when you've already fought at 140 against Mario Barrios? It's despicable. It's ignorant. Stupid. I despise it with everything in my being. You and Javante Tank Davis are acting like a bum because you ducked the stiffest competition going against your own words being the biggest hypocrite. Your own fans can't defend this. I won't defend this because there's no defending anything. I've never defended you in the first place because there's no, again, I don't defend. I just call it like it is. That's all that there is. And in this boxing sphere, all that we see right now is a man ducking the biggest smoke because he seemingly can't fight that heavy. But now we'll fight at 140. Dare I say 170 with only a month in advance. His words, not mine. Reeks, stinks. Of hypocrisy and makes your reputation really come into question. Because now there's a question of do you even think you can beat Devin Haney if it's not at 140? Do you think that you're good enough to beat anybody outside of your own weight class who is seen as elite? Brings in the bigger question why you went and weight drained Ryan Garcia when you were willing to do that against Conor Ben. When you were willing to fight unabated in his weight class, in his weight class versus Conor Ben. No, it's no. There's no defending this. You're acting like a bum. Just like Tyson Fury. Just like Floyd against Winky Wright and against Keith Thurman. And just like you now, against Devin Haney, when you fight right there and you choose to fight somebody bigger than him in Conor Ben, after saying that you are not big enough and your camp and your own promoter, saying that you are not comfortable fighting at 130, fighting above 135. 
There's nothing I can say except for you're acting like a bum. Schmuck. To quote one of my good friends. A schmuck. Jalen Faust, shout out to you. Schmuck. Acting like a schmuck. A bum. You're acting like a bum. I don't care if you get mad at it. He is acting like a bum because he willingly is not doing what is necessary in terms of taking on the biggest challenges when they are aptly available. That fight could be made within the month. Dare I say within the week. If he just said, I want it, let's make it happen. Can't say it ain't big. Can't say it won't sell. Can't say it won't be exciting because Devin Haney just proved he's a different animal entirely after what he did against Regis Bogues. There's nothing that I don't see what the holdup is anymore. There's no holdup at all. It's just Devin Haney. Seemingly. And Javante Tank Davis' eyes. It's just too big. But then Connor Ben, who came in at the same weight as doggone Archer Bedevia, it's just the right size for him to fight. Just the right size. He'll beat him. He'll knock him out easy. He'll get there. Again, the talks are legitimately stirring up that this fight might actually happen. But the fight with Devin Haney or any of the best at 140, whatever. Not even the fight with Shakur Stevenson. It's going to happen. Ridiculous. It's a duck. And Javante Tank Davis acting, let me say that slower, so the people in the back can hear it. Javante Tank Davis is acting like a bum because he is not taking on the biggest challenges when they are aptly and appropriately and substantially in front of him. The only thing that he needs to do is say the word and that fight gets made. But he won't because he's seemingly scared. That's all we can say right now. That's the only conclusion I can make from this. I'd never say this about any fighter until you show something that gives me something to say otherwise. And this is a situation where Tank, I don't care if you think you're bigger or smaller, you can't say that you want to fight, that you won't fight at 140 and then go and call out a 147, just about a 170 pounder. And Connor Benton, you can't do that. You can't do that. That is ridiculous. And you're wrong. And you are hurting your own self. There's no defending this. Tank, you're a bump because you're ducking the only relevant competition that is right in front of you. And it's ridiculous. Now I ain't going to stand for it. Not at all. No, we're calling you out. Everybody, like we said before on this channel, we need to hold fighters' feet to the fire. We need to hold fighters accountable. We need to hold fighters in the same metric that we held other greats at. That they just did because it was their job. If you want to be great, be great. Not because of your ability, but because of your production. Roy Jones Jr. was great. If he didn't do what he did, he wouldn't be seen as nearly the caliber of fighter that we know him as. The talent could be as just as good. But if he didn't go and try to move up from middleweight to heavyweight. If he didn't even try to go and clean out every major fighter in his division. If he didn't fight James Tony, if he didn't fight Bernard Hawkins, if he didn't do it, if he didn't even, I believe in the later stages of his career, out of his prime, if he didn't try to fight Antonio Tarver, if he didn't try to fight Joe Kawasaki, if he didn't try to, if he, if he didn't do that, his career wouldn't have been looked at nearly the same, nearly the same. 
but he did it. Hence why I can confidently say he might be the greatest from a talent perspective. Not only is he one of the greatest boxers in history that ruled the 90s, arguably the most purely talented, raw talent. He might be the most talented boxer I've ever seen. Outside, with his only competition being Sugar Ray Robbins. That's it. But I can say that with confidence because he accomplished it. He went and ran through everybody who was also running through everybody. Tank, you ain't doing that. You ain't done that since Leo Santa Cruz. Let's be perfectly honest. We're talking about from a talent perspective. You ain't done that since Leo Santa Cruz. The last legitimate, substantially talented opponent that you went up against was Leo Santa Cruz. No disrespect to Isaac Cruz or Ryan Garcia, but Isaac Cruz, you fought with a hurt hand. And he gave you some trouble, understandable. But if you fought him again, most likely, most likely you're not going to win. Again, mad respect to Isaac Cruz. Still, point still stands. Ryan Garcia, bigger name, but nowhere close to the level. Nowhere close to a talent perspective on the level of you. Cruz was closer in talent than Ryan Garcia was at that point in time. And now you go and do this. Be the biggest hypocrite that you can be by fighting, willing to fight, calling out consistently. Connor Ben, who fights at welterweight, same class as Terrence Crawford, who came into the fight against Dobson at 170 pounds the night of the fight, stepping into the ring. Not the weigh-in. Weigh-in, he weighed in at 150. Night of the fight, he came in 170. And you want to fight him. But you won't fight Devin Haney or any of the top upper echelon of 140. All we can do is call you a duck. And just like Tyson Fury, acting like a bum. Just like Floyd Mayweather, when he avoided both Ronald, uh, Ronald White, Winky White, Winky White, excuse me, and Keith Thurman later on in his career when he could have gone against him 50 and 0 instead of going with Conor McGregor. You acted, you ducked. It's just plain and simple. You ducked. You ducked. And just like those two in those instances, you acted like and are acting like a bum. There's no other way to say it. With that being said, this has been another episode of The Welch Report. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for listening. My goodness, this was a oh, this is an action-packed show. A lot of lot of emotion going on, but I'm passionate about this because I'm passionate about you, the fans all around the world who listen to this show. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for listening. Again, leave a like on the video. Comment your thoughts and opinions on everything that we talked about. Subscribe to the channel and share the show with everybody that you know. Again, we're available on every podcasting platform. Rate us five stars everywhere that you listen. Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, name it with there. If not, we'll get there trust and believe but again this has been the watch but i've been sean the coach y'all have been wonderful we'll be back with so many more episodes and more much more on this show later on peace and love we are out of here